Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting March 11, 2016, we consider deadly cross currents at the Syria Turkey border before, during, and after the ceasefire. We'll also point out top features in the WPJ winter issue, Latin America on life support. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, call it a rookie error, but when Barack Obama became president seven long years ago, he thought he could broker a long-lasting peace deal between Israel and the Palestinian Authority that would include an ever-elusive two-state solution. He thought that, in turn, would lower the temperature in the Middle East by removing one principal bone of contention that Arab countries have long raised. Well, that did not happen, of course, and now with 10 months left in his presidency, Obama is trying to lay the groundwork for his successor by outlining a plan for him or her to pursue. Meantime, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has canceled a trip to Washington, perhaps meaning he has met with Obama for the final time. The White House is diplomatically not calling this a snub, pointing out that Netanyahu met with Vice President Joe Biden in Jerusalem this week. Someone Mr. Obama does get along with much better is visiting Washington as scheduled. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Canada is, of course, America's top trade partner and its biggest supplier of oil. The two leaders are working closely on trade matters and climate change, but Obama is privately displeased that Trudeau has ended the participation of the Canadian Air Force in bombing the so-called Islamic State. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. A ceasefire the United Nations has described as the best hope for peace in five years of civil war in Syria appears largely to be holding. Russian airstrikes have stopped for now and guns have reportedly fallen mostly silent. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and many of his opponents agreed to the U.S.-Russia brokered deal. An early report from Euronews. But no matter how well or poorly the Syrian ceasefire might proceed after its modest beginning at the end of February, it excluded from the outset the forces and territory of ISIS, the Islamic State, and other major Muslim terror groups, which likely meant the continuation of deadly cross-currents in key areas at the Turkish border. Along with the outpouring of Syrian refugees from terror and violence, come enough actual terrorists and terrorist ideology to foment bloody attacks in Ankara, Istanbul, and perhaps beyond. Smuggled into Syria are radicalized recruits and supplies to help continue the bloody campaign for a contemporary caliphate under harsh Sharia law. Complexities abound. On a national level, there are allegations that Ankara is facilitating the sale of ISIS oil and to some degree permitting other aid to the Islamic State to counter effective anti-ISIS operations by Kurdish forces that could lead to a Kurd substate in Syria and encourage Kurdish separatists in Turkey that Ankara now accuses of returning to terrorism there. Indeed, Turkey recently demanded that Washington end its alliance with Kurdish militias in Syria if it wanted to continue long-standing ties to Ankara. 
illuminating this dark dynamic in his own border region for the winter 2016 issue of World Policy Journal is Professor Ahmed S. Yaila, chairman of the Department of Sociology and of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Haran University in Şanlıurfa, Turkey. His article is headlined, Deadly Interactions, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Professor Yaila, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you very much. Şanlıurfa is one of the world's oldest continuous settlements. Just how old is it and where along the border with Syria? It is around uh, 11 to 12,000 years old. It goes back to uh, 10th millennium, like BCE. And there is a settlement just around 10 kilometers, like eight, seven miles away from the center of Şanlıurfa called Göbekli Tepe, where uh, world's first settlement was established along with uh, farming and other city-like activities. So there is a still there is still an archaeological study going on there, and there are lots of artifacts from those times. So it is really old, world's uh, first settlement, I can say. Talk a bit about the mixed population that produces conflicting sympathies for and against the Turkish government, for and against the Islamic State, and even the Kurdish forces fighting for a state of their own. So, uh, Şanlıurfa shares a border of 137 miles on the south of Turkey uh, with Syria. And if you look at the history, especially during the Ottoman times, uh, that region was governed by a governor uh, from the city of Sham, as we call uh, Aleppo. So that governor was in charge of Syria and Iraq and even uh, today's Saudi Arabia region. So when we look at the population between Syria and Turkey right now, especially the border towns and villages, all those people are uh, relatives. So we have at the border, like 100 foot away from the border, there is a small village just across it. Then there is a small, there is another uh, small village uh, on the Turkish side. So you can even talk to each other and see each other very closely from the fence of the border. And those people are not only uh, sharing the same old villages that were established years ago, thousands of years ago, but also they are relatives. So on the Kurdish side, you have Kurdish villages across the border who are relatives and who are still marrying each other. So the person across my house on the other side would be my uncle and most of the time my nieces. And it is true for the uh, Arab part uh, of the border as well. For example, in Akçakale, uh, you can see the other side of the border, people living in their villages and houses without any problems. And most of the time, those are our relatives. Uh, when I say our, the people who are living in those villages. So it is quite mixed up uh, in terms of the population uh, between Syria and Turkey. How many Syrians have taken refuge in Turkey overall and in the Şanlıurfa region specifically? So Şanlıurfa has a population of 2 million, including uh, the villages and towns uh, under its uh, jurisdiction. The main hub uh, for the Syrian conflict uh, was 
through Shamlufa, uh, especially through the villages of Suruch and Akchakale. We estimate that over 3 million people are right now living from Syria in Turkey in different parts of the country. However, there are over 400,000 uh, refugees, or as we call guests, in Shanurfa alone. So Shanurfa has the highest number of Syrian refugees living inside its borders. And all around the border, Turkey has established 27 uh, refugee camps. Five of them are in Shanurfa, and in those camps there are over 120,000 uh, guests. Let's focus first on those guest refugees have gone to major towns and cities in the area. What, what's been their impact there, economically, socially, psychologically? So, Turkey considers um, our Syrian friends as guests. Their status just for the war, because of the war in Syria, has been changed, so they can stay as long as they want. Uh, so they are not asked their uh, residency permits to stay in. What they do is they register when they are entering Turkey through the border, or after they enter uh, Turkey through illegal means, basically through uh, the borders, but not the border gate. They register and they give their fingerprints to the authorities and they are issued an ID. After that, they are free to go anywhere in Turkey. Uh, I guess there, aren't, there are around, for example, 300, 400,000 uh, Syrians living in Istanbul right now. Wherever you go in Turkey, you could see Syrian panhandlers or people begging for money because most of the time they cannot work. Uh, even if they work, they cannot feed their family, so they are mainly poor, or their resources that they brought in from Syria, thinking that it would be a temporary thing, has already diminished. So, of course, this issue uh, puts a huge burden on Turkish economy. There are Syrian um, young people who are committing crimes, and when it comes to find out who did what, it is very difficult because of the language barriers or issues related with names and IDs, etc. Also, socially, they are affecting uh, our cultures and the life inside the cities. For example, in Shanulfa, the rent prices has increased dramatically because many of those uh, refugees started to rent apartments and houses. Uh, this increased around 30 to 50 percent of the rates. So there is an economical burden also on the people as well. Let's shift our attention to those in the camps. Uh, you said the camps have become, uh, as well as refuges, actually bases for recruiting, training, and even staging opposition uh, to the regime of Syrian President Assad, including by ISIS, from which uh, presumably uh, at least some of these refugees are fleeing. Yes. When we look at these uh, refugee camps, these are very modern, clean, nice um, living quarters. However, they were set up for temporarily, but it's been almost over three, maybe four years now people are living in them. And there are schools, um, 
Amenities value could carry out um, cultural activities, social activities. There are shops, markets, and there are other places that you take care of yourself, like uh, small hospitals. So one could live there for a long time. However, it is like huge prisons. So I would assume nobody would like to live in those camps without any reason. And many of those people who are living in the camps are really poor, so they have to be there. They do not have the means to live outside of the camps. And it is also safer for them to be there. But the numbers are vast. In Suruj camp, for example, there are around, around 28, 29,000 people. And there are many people who are doing anything, just living their lives over there. And it is very difficult to know who is who coming from Syria. So therefore, there are some people who are in those camps for their illicit activities, be from ISIS, be from Jepetun Nusra, or be from uh, Bashar Assad's uh, intelligence and military. And those people are trying to recruit uh, for their causes. And we had seen instances that they were successful, especially the jihadis like ISIS and Jepetun Nusra uh, to recruit young people between the ages of 15 and 18. Many families, when we look at in those camps, are against those kind of activities. They had seen the ugly face of war. However, uh, the recruiters sometimes are gaining momentum between the youngsters, especially when you think about the young people over there in the camps doing nothing. You know, uh, the empty hands are there with workshop. So they are reaching out to those kids. Talk about the way uh, ISIS has actually taken over old smuggler operations to bring in recruits and supplies and, and get them out, uh, including, you say, there's a, an ever more powerful bomb-making operation going on. So when we look at the history, historically, between Syria and Turkey and Iraq, uh, and Turkey, the smugglers were mainly the villages, uh, villagers across the border and they were working with their relatives and friends uh, across the border to smuggle in and out different artifacts and people. Uh, it would be like sugar, tobacco, sometimes animals and sometimes uh, weapons, drugs, narcotics, you name it. Whatever or however they could make money they used uh, those smuggle uh, rules they had established uh, to make money, basically. It was illegal, though they were doing it. But we need to understand, those villages are very close, like 100 feet apart. Yes, there, there are mines between uh, Turkish and Syrian border. However, those villages, by the time, uh, they exploded some of them or they know where they are mined, so they could use their experiences to pass through the mined areas. And of course, there were some casualties. In the past, where the PKK was operating in the region alone, the PKK used to um, give money to the smugglers or force them to help them out to go in and out of the country. Wait a and second. Let's, let, let, let's define PKK. That's, that's one of the factions of the Kurdish forces. Yes, Partia uh, Kurdia, uh, Kurdistan, uh, Kurdish People's Workers' Party. Uh, 
which has been active in Turkey as a terrorist organization, internationally recognized, and cost uh, 40,000 of people's lives in Turkey. So one of the main ethnicity-based terrorist organizations in Turkey. So they use the old smuggler operations, and now ISIS has taken to using some of these same routes and, and operators. Yes. You know, the smugglers have to abide by them for two reasons. If they are doing this business, they are making money out of it. Second, for example, the ISIS uh, fighter or terrorist would come to you and say, you know, I'm going to use this route, so just help me and take this money. It would be very difficult for them to say no, otherwise they would be killed. So it's like a life matters for them. So they, they have no say uh, to terrorist organizations. They have to just do whatever they want. And if they can, get their share from that trade, illicit trade, and just sit there. So when ISIS arrived, they made sure that they control, especially the Syrian part of the border, 100% through the smugglers, and to the... Turkish part of, at the Turkish part of the border, they told the smugglers, you know, whoever you are uh, smuggling into or smuggling out of the uh, country, you need to give us information and tell if any ISIS member is passing uh, the border without our knowledge. They also issued, like, passage documentation where the ISIS emir would stamp so that the smugglers could help them to pass. Otherwise, a smuggler would risk his life because if an ISIS fighter finds out that a smuggler is helping someone from ISIS without a permit, would kill him uh, on the scene. There is also ISIS intelligence operating at this border. So they try to control the border and the passages between Syria and Turkey to make sure that unwanted people are not being brought in or brought, uh, brought out which is also critical because people at that region know that if they do not abide with the rules of ISIS or the PKK or Jabhat-e Nusra, they get killed, they lose their lives, and they risk their family's life. life. So they are very cautious on these matters. Yes, ISIS used these hundreds of years old established routes and smuggling schemes for its activities. Even they drove cars, trucks to supply themselves. They stole cars and trucks uh, from Turkey. They drove them to the war, uh, to the war zone in, in Syria for their purposes. So if you look at the border, it is a wide open like American-Mexican borders. Uh, you don't have to use the border gates to drive to the uh, Syrian part. So if you steal a 4x4 truck from Turkey, you can easily drive it if you do not uh, get caught inside the city to Syria without any problem. So there was this ongoing traffic between Syria and Turkey for years. Interestingly, you found that refugees from some areas in Syria that have been taken back from ISIS by Kurdish militias are not all eager to return home themselves, even some who are also Kurds. Explain the factors that divide the Kurds there. When we look at the population in the, in, in the city of Kobane, the Kurds, yes, they are Kurds. However, the PKK and PYD in Syria, which is 
Syrian version of the PKK do not represent them because they feel the PKK is a Marxist terrorist organization and those Kurds consider themselves as Muslim Sunni Kurds and historically and ideologically they are far apart from the PKK and PYD they do not think alike and they do not like each other and even when you look at the war in Kobane ISIS was fighting against the PKK and PYD with the help of some Kurds even the commander was from among the Kurds so he was a Kurdish guy who was leading the ISIS battle against uh, the Kobane Kurds who were fighting in Kobane so those people after um, the PYD and the Kurds won over ISIS did not want to go back uh, Kobane because they were not sure what would be the life under PYD and the PKK? Um, you note in your in your article that uh, there wasn't a lot of extremist Muslim ideology in Turkey before the Russian forces invaded Afghanistan and the United States helped lead the fight, including uh, mobilizing uh, uh, Muslim uh, forces uh, to throw the Russians out, and that that. Uh, strengthened uh, the hold of uh, the extremist Salafi view in the country. But I want to return to the recruitment of, uh, of young people that you mentioned before. What are the, the major motivations now for those who come to fight with ISIS? Is it the heavenly sex we've heard about, uh, salvation from past sins? Give us some case histories. Okay. I think when we look at the young people who are joining ISIS from Turkey, we, we see three different types of categories. The first type, which is, which is ideologically sincere type, are those uh, people who were indoctrinated on the Salafist and Jihadist ideologies by the people uh, which ISIS uh, sent to Turkey or ISIS recruited in Turkey to spread its ideology. And when we look at those people, they were, some of them were the people who had been to Afghanistan to fight against Russians. So that, when they went to Afghanistan, they were trained in military and Sharia camps uh, with the Taliban by the Al-Qaeda uh, Shays. So many of them became Al-Qaeda affiliated Salafists and Jihadists. Turkey lost uh, around 200 people in the war in Afghanistan. And many of those fighters, there were around uh, 5,000, came back to Turkey. When they came back, nobody thought that they would be spreading Salafism, uh, Salafist jihadi ideas uh, in Turkey in the beginning because Turkey was far away from this thinking. People really did not think that they were close to that understanding of Islam. Years passed. In 2003, uh, November 15 and 20, there were four suicide truck bombings in Istanbul targeting an HPC bank, a British consulate, and two synagogues. So it was like a blow for the Turkish community and for the Turkish law enforcement that Al-Qaeda was really getting established inside the country. So fast forward to today, when we came to the Syrian conflict, those established cells in the past by the Al-Qaeda members who came back from Afghanistan 
fight, started to recruit again for Jepet Nusra and for ISIS because there was also a divide in between them uh, in terms of siding ISIS or the Al-Qaeda version of Jepet Nusra in Syria. Those people kept recruiting people and indoctrinating uh, youth around themselves. Most of the time they are their close circles. However, the sincere believers of uh, Salafism and Jihadi ideology were coming from this group. So those were around all over Turkey and they were teaching young people their ideology and sending them to Syria to fight in those uh, groups. The second group, when we look at the people who were going to fight in Syria, uh, are the young people who I, who I name them as like street thugs. These are the youth who were doing drugs and alcohol on the streets, who do not have any money, who need money to support themselves to buy drugs, uh, mainly not educated well, and who do not see any future for themselves in Turkey. They are uh, not married. So those recruiters approached to those people on the street. They tried to uh, reach them out and told them, you know, come here, convert to our understanding of Islam. By this way, you can cleanse your sins coming through the drugs and alcohol. We will give you money because ISIS gives around $200 per month to its fighters. We will also get you married uh, once you arrive in Syria. So you will have a family, a monthly salary, and we will also give you a house to live in. The third was the people who were adventurists. They were mainly the people who were looking for action in different parts of the world. They were maybe playing video games and killing and fighting in those video games, and that wasn't enough for them anymore. They wanted more adventurous lifestyle. They want to do the things they did in the video games, in those video games. Given your observations on motivation and transportation of people, supplies, ideology across your borders, what tactics do you see as most likely to halt the spread of ISIS, eventually undermine or defeat it? You know, there are two issues here. ISIS is consisted of uh, foreign fighters and locals. 35% of uh, ISIS fighters are from locals. And when we look at those locals, as far as um, I can see through my uh, interviews with Dr. Anspeckert, whom we are working on this issue, over half of the local ISIS fighters became ISIS members and fighters through the circumstances ISIS established in those areas. Which means, once ISIS captures a town or a village, they control all economical means, and they do not give jobs or help to regular people who do not accept their rule, who do not join ISIS. So locals can be here maybe two months, three months, at most six months, before they start to suffer hunger. So in terms of to feed themselves and to provide security to themselves, they start to join ISIS. So many of those locals 
do not uh, join ISIS through their ideologies, but the circumstances that was established in those uh, regions. But the difficult ones are the foreigners, because foreigners are true believers of ISIS ideology. They are indoctrinated in their countries, and then from their countries they are sent to ISIS to fight. And regularly ISIS does not accept anyone coming from Europe or from other countries as a member, because if they are not sent by one of their recruiters from Europe or from other parts of the world, they do not trust them. So they have to have face-to-face -face connections before they arrive uh, into ISIS territory. The biggest uh, factor in countering uh, the recruitment of ISIS is focusing on those foreigners. So we have to come up with ways of countering ISIS ideology to persuade those foreign fighters not to accept Salafist Jihadi ideology and maybe we have to be able to provide them the real understanding of Islam in terms of violence, jihad, uh, and other parts of religion that are being used to persuade those people falsely into the hands of terrorists. You say we, but who are the people who are uh, most influenced? Yes, when I say we, because I'm from Turkey, uh, we, the Muslim world, Yes, the, uh, the West has also lots of things to do, but as Muslims, uh, we are seeing that our religion is being twisted by those terrorists for their own causes. Regularly and normally, Islam is a religion of peace and does not accept the violence and killing of innocent people. In fact, according to Islamic Sharia rules, no one kills anyone. According to the Quran, killing one person is killing like the whole world. So, where we have the real religion does not accept of violence and killing of anyone without any reasoning. When I say without any reasoning, there are no reasons that one person can kill another one, according to our religion. Whereas ISIS and other jihadi ideologies are using our religion as their ideology and showing it to their members as the most violent terrorist organization uh, ideology that never existed even in the past. So as Muslims, we have to come up and raise our voices and find out ways to teach our youth about real Islam, which is 100% against violence. Talk about the special importance of the Internet and social media in the spread and the defeat of ISIS. Yes, we have to accept that ISIS is uh, very successful on the social media and producing professional media materials like their journal Dabik or the videos they are spreading around the world. ISIS is using the social media for two things. Through their propaganda, to reach out to new recruits and brainwash them. And second, to spread their fear by the videos and the, by the pure violence they are pulling over uh, to the internet. We know that even if a youth or someone in the West is being indoctrinated through social media, they have to have a real connection when it comes to joining ISIS. So someone in the West could get attracted 
by the social media and by the video or by, uh, by other propaganda materials ISIS is producing, but that's not enough. There needs to be a real connection which will refer, who will refer that person to ISIS in Syria or in Iraq so that that person can become a real ISIS fighter. So European or Western intelligence agencies need to reach out those contact points who are referring the youth in their countries to Syria. Because many times those youth who are coming to become ISIS members are meeting with the middlemen either in Europe or in Turkey and those people are referring them to ISIS. So we must control this traffic by reaching out to the middlemen who are acting as the fixers and handlers of ISIS recruitment. This is a critical point. If we can control as national law enforcement agencies, we can stop at least the flow of uh, new members to ISIS. Second, we have to be able to, as the world uh, countries, not only uh, Muslim countries, but all of the countries who are suffering from this problem, counter uh, social media activities and productions to counter their violence and ideology. When we look at on the social media, it is uh, very obvious that ISIS is winning this war on the social media. So they went there, asked ISIS to accept them to fight in their side. So combining of these three, we can explain that uh, we have, as Turkey, right now around 15 or 13 to 1500 people currently fighting and waging a war uh, with ISIS in Syria. And we have other jihadis like in Jabhat al-Nusra and Ahrar al-Sham or other smaller groups. Um, those Turkish fighters are fighting for them as well. We can assume that there is a support base of 5000 people uh, who are actively uh, supporting ISIS and other jihadis in Syria right now. 5,000 people in Turkey who are supporting the operations in Syria. In total, some of them are in Syria right now fighting the real war. The rest uh, are like supporting them logistically and in other means. But the total number is around 5,000, yes. How important to the power of ISIS is its successful control of large territories in Syria and Iraq? If it were defeated on the ground, would it lose the ability to order and inspire terrorism in the area and, and far beyond Ankara, Istanbul, Paris, Washington, Tehran, maybe Moscow? You know, it is a dilemma because right now ISIS is uh, kind of fighting a conventional war. So we know where ISIS is. We know they are fighters, uh, we can see who they are. But nowadays what ISIS is talking, if it comes to the worst, if we are defeated in our strongholds, what we are going to do? And they say what we are going to do is, we are going to shave off our beard and hair, so we are going to become just regular Syrian citizens and then we are going to blend in. Blend in where? Blend in Syria. Iraq, Turkey, and Europe. So now, all of a sudden, we are going to have a real terrorist organization apart from a conventional army, which we are not going to be able to see 
very easily and they are going to blend themselves in different populations which will become a bigger problem in the future if they are defeated and if they, do, they lose all the land they have we are going to be, have to look at those people among the populations and we are not going to be able to wage a conventional war against them for example a coalition force airplane is not going to be able to bump anyone so there is going to be a bigger threat in terms of terrorism where they are going to assault and attack in different parts of the world especially in turkey and in europe so i guess after the defeat of isis uh, the future is not going to be really bright because it is very difficult you know in terms of when you look at the syrian refugees to realize who is who and right now we have over three million syrian refugees in turkey and we cannot det uh, determine who is doing what and who is who in terms of their background so it is very difficult who is going to attack and assault professor yala thank you so much you're welcome Professor Ahmed Esiyala is chairman of the Department of Sociology and of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Haran University in Şanlıurfa, Turkey. His article in the winter 2016 issue of World Policy Journal is headlined, Deadly Interactions. Also featured in the WPJ winter issue, Latin America on Life Support, You'll find articles about economic and social evolution in the region, defiance and despair in Venezuela, and black sites on the Internet. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the prospects for better governance and growth in Latin America with economist Angel Guria, formerly Mexico's Minister of Finance and Public Credit, then its Minister of Foreign Affairs, and currently Secretary General of the International Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, in Paris. After last week's podcast, guest Amilcar Rayumeko corrected his count of refugees from Burundi to 80,000 in Rwanda and 100,000 in Tanzania. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>